if enough acreage in the world would begin to farm regeneratively, we might be able to draw down and integrate into the living soil of a regenerative farm enough of the atmospheric legacy CO2 to actually reverse climate change. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello and welcome, fellow do-gooders and friends. I am your host, Karina Blizzy, an activist and cause marketer who's passionate about social impact and sustainability. If you've just discovered this show, you may not have heard that I created a powerful tool for all of my listeners. It's a five-step guide to help you on your journey to make a difference and have more impact. If you're curious, all you have to do is go to caremorebebetter.com and sign up for my newsletter. You'll receive a download link right away. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Tom Newmark, who I know from my life working in the natural products industry, and I'm sure many of you know him as well. He was the CEO of New Chapter back in 2012 and left to focus his passion and dig deep in the world of regenerative agriculture, creating truly sustainable solutions. He owns a regenerative farm and retreat center that we'll all learn a little bit about, Finca Luna Nueva, where I'm really curious to learn more. And I have a surprise for him specific to that as well. And he's the co-founder and chair of the not-for-profit The Carbon Underground. If you've been following my work on regeneration, I have mentioned that, and I'm just really thrilled that we get to dig into this together. Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, this is incredible for me because I have to tell you, I have heard so many great things about Finca Nueva or Finca Luna Nueva, I think is what it's called. (laughs) So what does that mean exactly? It originated because the concept of doing extractions was to set the herbs on the new moon and to pull the herbs in extract form on the full moon. So it relates back to the origins of this farm as a spice farm supplying new chapter, actually, my old company, with ginger and turmeric for herbal extractions. And so the original name of new chapter was New Moon Botanicals. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. (laughs) And so this became the farm of the new moon, Finca Luna Nueva. Never owned by new chapter, always owned separately. I'm proud to own this with my buddy and partner and teacher, Stephen Farrell, who's the great organic and regenerative farmer. But we've had a long connection with New Chapter. We don't have that connection now. Still have a lot of love and respect for my old company, but we're no longer supplying anything to it. Oh, wow. I didn't know that either. I just assumed that continued even after the close, but... It's kind of not surprising. Things are bound to change, especially over the years. Sure. Yeah. I was excited about this interview before, and I think you got that. But then something happened. I'm a firm believer that happy coincidences tend to occur when you're on the right path, whatever that path might be. And the day after I connected with you to talk about coming on this show, an industry friend reached out to me, and they shared with me that they were getting ready to host an exclusive sort of retreat in Costa Rica 
They started talking about a regenerative farm and the types of things that we'd be doing together if I came on. And I mentioned, oh, wow, I was just talking to Tom Newmark about his <laughs> facilities there and everything. And she said, oh, well, it's actually at Finca Luna. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> so, great. So I may be coming out to Costa Rica in a few months' time. And I just think it's something I've heard so much about over the years from the many people who have gone and enjoyed the facilities and either as a part of your work with New Chapter or just on their own to enjoy the treat. Well, Karina, that's just a hoot. No such thing as coincidences. And I guarantee you that we will roll out the green carpet for you. <laughs> we'll have a photosynthesizing chorus of plants cheering you on. So I hope I can be here. Yeah. Well, I'll let you know when I have more details and I'll just have to convince my husband that I need to be there and without the kids. So <laughs> right. not completely done yet. But we're very kid friendly and we're even friendly to husbands. So if you're interested in regenerative agriculture and rainforest conservation, we think we have just the bird and breakfast place for you. So this is a wonderful place for people who love nature but want to explore how farming can produce food regeneratively in the tropics where so many people on the planet live. Yeah, so why don't we start there? Tell us about the creation of this resource of Finca Luna. What led to it? How did we get there? Well, it, it was inspired by the desire of my old company of New Chapter to source organic ginger. Mm -hmm. Way back in the early 1990s, before the National Organic Program, there were very few sources, uh, reliable sources of organic ginger. There was a place in Hawaii, and there was this little farmer in this obscure mountain hamlet of La Tigra mm. that was doing organic ginger production. And so New Chapter contracted with Farmer, happened to be Stephen Farrell, and that was the start way back in 1992. And then in 1994, a group for early supporters of New Chapter bought this land, and Stephen Farrell became an owner, partner, and president of Finca Luna Nueva. And again, never a part of New Chapter, but a bunch of crazy, independent, visionary, hopeful folks bought this land. And over time, Stephen and I, it's been delightful that we've been able to consolidate the ownership now, and he and I are the owners. But it started as a source of organic ginger. And that's really an interesting launching pad for a conversation because you talk about sustainability, which is a term that I do not like mm -hmm. because there's really nothing right now worth sustaining. We need to either regenerate or leave the planet for the next iteration of evolution. But New Chapter started as a new chapter. Finca Luna Nueva began as an organic ginger estate. And it soon reached out to a cousin of ginger, Kirkamalonga turmeric, and we were growing turmeric and ginger here at this farm. And we morphed from an organic 
farm certified under the National Organic Program to a Demeter certified biodynamic farm because we were always looking for, is there a better way? Is there a way more in harmony with the laws of nature? Is there a way that we can farm that is a win for the planet and a win for the health of the individual? And so we went from organic, which is simply a regulatory regime that regulates inputs, to biodynamic, which is both input-oriented and process-oriented. So we experimented for years and years with biodynamic farming. We taught biodynamic agriculture here at Finkel and Nueva. We made our own preparations for biodynamic farming. We worked with the magicians and shaman around the world of biodynamic agriculture because biodynamics is a little bit agriculture and a little bit magic. So we did all that. And then I went to Rodale about 12 years ago with my daughter, Sarah, and we met with the then CEO, the first CEO of the Rodale Institute, Dr. Tim LaSalle. And Tim LaSalle took us out to the Rodale farming test site where they were growing organic and conventional side by side. And he was explaining how over time, the yields were roughly comparable, but the soil carbon and soil organic matter was vastly better in the areas of organic rather than conventional cultivation. But then we went into his office and he said, let me tell you what's really happening. What's really happening is that there is a way to farm, which is beyond organic. There is a way to farm, which is, in a way, a biomimetic system, a mimicry of how in the grasslands, prairies and grasslands produce food calories and nutrition. And in the rainforest, how a forest produces nutrition. This system is called regenerative agriculture. Well, I never heard of regenerative agriculture. And Dr. LaSalle, who is my teacher, and I give him full credit for, frankly, all the work that I've done over the last decade and a half. Dr. LaSalle, Tim, then said to Sarah and to me, if enough acreage in the world would begin to farm regeneratively, we might be able to draw down and integrate into the living soil of a regenerative farm enough of the atmospheric legacy CO2 to actually reverse climate change. Now, you got to realize, Karina, I mean, I've been the board chair of Greenpeace Fund in the United States. Mm -hmm. I'm an environmental activist. I've been worried about climate chaos, the climate crisis for much of my life, mm -hmm. my adult life, certainly. And I had never really heard of the solution of using agriculture as a mechanism for drawing down legacy CO2. So I'm going, wait, wait, Tim, you're telling me that if we farm regeneratively, it's better than simply sustaining the soil organic matter levels that we have 
We can actually increase the soil organic matter levels. And he said, these are what the early data are showing. So then I went to our farm here Mm -hmm. and we did soil testing. And we compared our certified biodynamic organic ginger and turmeric fields to the margins of our farm, which were in transition back to secondary rainforest. So we compared what we had been doing in our farming, which we thought, patting ourselves on the back, that we were just the best. Mm -hmm. There's no way better than what we were doing. We compared it to a true baseline, which is what the ecosystem on its own was producing with no human intervention at all. And what we found is that both our pastures and our farming areas were doing far worse with soil organic matter levels than what the ecosystem would do if we ignored it. Hmm. In other words, our human manipulation, our method of farming was damaging the ecosystem. Well, this led to a lot of soul searching and soil searching. Yeah. How do you do it? How do you make it as good as it would be in the wild, so to speak? Yeah. I mean, what were we doing wrong? Right. I mean, we're using no synthetic fertility inputs. Everything was organic from the beginning of time. We were doing everything right, we thought. I'm guessing it was tilling, plowing? Well, there were a couple of things that were wrong. Hmm. We had a five-year crop rotation. Mm. and we would plant the turmeric and the ginger, and then we would harvest it, and then we would plant beans the next year, and then we would have three years of fallow where here in the rainforest, we're near the equator. It's all go and no slow. This is a permanent 24-7 growing season Mm -hmm. here. It's deep brush. Trees are developing. Then it was time to go back to that lot, go back to that field and grow ginger and turmeric. So we sent our pigs in and the pigs are hungry for grubs and Mm -hmm. they're amazing in turning the soil. And they did clear a lot of brush, but they didn't clear enough brush. So then we sent our farmers in with the plow being pulled by oxen. Mm -hmm. Again, we thought we were the greatest show on turf right? We were like, not only did we have pigs do the tilling, but then we had oxen-powered plows, and we were all singing and dancing and thinking we were great, but we were plowing. Mm -hmm. And then we did another thing wrong. Then we planted a crop of a field of ginger and a field of turmeric. Let me just hold this up here. That's the rainforest there. Right. It ain't a field of one crop. Right. There's no such thing as monoculture in this ecosystem. So not only were we ripping apart the flesh of Mother Earth with the blade of the plow, exposing the organic matter that we had built up to the decomposing microorganisms that were released by the plow and could get 
gain access to the tilth, but there was oxygen and sunlight, and the whole system was just primed for rapid decomposition and rapid release of soil organic matter through respiration into the atmosphere. So we were now a pump of CO2 into the atmosphere. But then we had the vanity of planting a crop Mm -hmm. when this ecosystem is saying, don't plant me in rows, don't plant me with bare earth, don't plant just one plant. I mean, we've had botanists come to my farm and look in the rainforest, which surrounds all of our fields, and there are at least 1,400 species of vascular plants in our ecosystem. And yet we, who thought we were smarter than nature, were planting one plant after having plowed the soil. So what we were doing was the same mistake that was made eight to 10,000 years ago in the Neolithic Revolution. We were issuing orders to the ecosystem to behave in ways that no natural ecosystem behaved. And we paid the price because the organic matter that we built up in all those years of fallow, we were releasing all of that and then some right. in the atmosphere. So we were not being regenerative, even though we were being organic. Even though we were certified Demeter biodynamic, we were being destructive of our ecosystem. And therefore, because I don't want to be responsible for destroying the planet, there was no way to go back to that system of agriculture. We had to figure out another way of farming. And fortunately, Mother Nature figured that out. Mother Nature figured out biodiversity. Mother Nature figured out that you don't have bare earth. Mother Nature figured all of that out, whether it was in grasslands or in forests. And so what we were then led to do was to mimic, to copy Mother Nature's way. And so using permaculture design, we now have fields where there are 20 or 30 crops growing tightly together. No, not 1,400, but lots of different plants with roots of different sizes, with roots that go to different depths, with leaves that are solar panels, after all, that were different heights and different shapes and different orientations. So we became a far more efficient collector of photons, of solar energy. By never disturbing the soil, we were able to have the photosynthetic process capturing the solar energy, drawing in CO2 from the atmosphere, taking up water through the roots, breaking apart H2O and CO2, re-scrambling, creating the carbohydrates releasing oxygen from the water that had been broken apart, fueling the metabolic needs of the plant through the carbohydrates, and then passing carbohydrates through root exudates into the soil, feeding the soil food web. Now, Karina, now 
we are regenerative. Now we are building back the tilth, the humus, the organic matter in the soil. And you can see it, you can feel it, you can taste it, and you can measure it. And that's now what we're doing here at our farm. So how far have you improved the soil? How close does it approximate what you find in the jungle floor now? Well, we just did soil tests earlier this year, and we only went down six inches. And the soil organic matter levels are really bouncing back. That's great. We're not all the way back yet, but they are bouncing back. We are seeing dramatic improvements in nutrient levels and in soil organic matter levels. You give me a few more years here, and we're going to win some prizes. Well, I can't wait to see that. Yeah, and well, you'll be here. You'll see it. We will show you what a regenerative farm looks like. And the good news about regenerative agriculture is that it takes a farm wherever it starts. And using the principles of regenerative agriculture, we can keep building on that. There is no end point. At least theoretically, we're not yet aware of an end point. That, in other words, that the soil can't get better, that you can't draw more CO2 down from the atmosphere and integrate it into the tissue of Mother Earth. And the reason why we don't know what the limits are is because there have been times on the planet when there have been four or 5,000 parts of CO2 per million in the atmosphere. And in the Devonian period and the Ordovician period, with the development of terrestrial plant life, we've been able to draw down thousands of parts of CO2 to levels that at some point actually got as low as 180 parts per million of CO2. Mother Earth has an extraordinary capacity to create a system which supports the continuity of life on the planet. The Great Plains used to be great. In some parts, they went down many, many meters. In Great Britain, there were great soils where now there are none. Soils that went down three plus meters, and now they're at bedrock. We've done a lot of on scratching with pencils and computations on the back of envelopes. There seems to be enough room on earth if we cultivate enough land regeneratively that we could draw down every molecule of legacy toxic CO2 and put that carbon back to work in supporting life. So we don't even know what the end point is. And we also, in regenerative agriculture, we're not handcuffed. We're not bound by an orthodoxy of practice. Mm -hmm. Because it's not practice-based. It's all about mimicking Mother Nature and being creative. And we want farmers all around the world to be creative and to understand the basic principles, which would be minimize disruption of soil, minimize the introduction of synthetic fertility, and use biological diversity as your tool. 
And using those basic principles, literally the soil's unlimited. So I want to talk about how technology has kind of put us in this space and also some of the reasons why perhaps we really need to be very mindful that technology may not provide the solutions that we think it can. One of the trends that we see here in California, there's a lot of different companies that are working to make food solutions that are more technologically based. We'll move agriculture indoors. We'll make microgreens. We'll go ahead and develop protein out of air. We will use GMO soy to make hamburger patties that are like meats. We're going to do all of these things to solve our food crises without really addressing a regenerative solution. And in fact, I think there's this irony at the center of it all, which kind of brings me back to my early college days. Joseph Campbell's work, he would center on the invention of the plow and say that it was the thing that enabled us to move from being tribal hunter-gatherers to having cities to having secure food storage year-round and to developing into what we are today. So again, I'd just like to get your perspective on this irony of technology, the fact that it's put us where we are today, and how we can really learn from Mother Nature in order to solve the problems or, or do so differently than by capitalizing on technology. Well, who am I to argue with Joseph Campbell, right? <laughs> but I'll quote another titan, another great scholar that people have heard of, Jared Diamond. Mm -hmm. Collapse, guns, germs, and steel. Mm -hmm. Jared wrote an article, Professor Diamond wrote an article about 15 years ago where he said that the greatest mistake in the history of humanity was the invention of the plow. So if we're going to have a war between Joseph Campbell <laughs> and Jared Diamond, I'm going to go with Jared Diamond on this one. Because what he looked at is the vanity of, I'll slip into kind of a World War II frightening vernacular, the octung, the order, the demand, Mother Nature, you will submit, you will surrender. Mm -hmm. That mindset, which was a biblical mindset, which in the book of Genesis, going back to the mythological stories that Joseph Campbell might look at, the earth was created for us. We are the stewards of the planet. Well, that's just belonging. It's a mindset. I know. It's like somehow we're not connected. Somehow we aren't going to experience any repercussions from our actions. And there are terrifying consequences mm -hmm. that we're now reaping because of that mindset of that paradigm, the paradigm that we are separate from nature, that nature was created for our benefit, that we can bend nature to our will, that we can take iron, talking about irony, that we can take iron and rip apart Mother Earth, mm -hmm. tear apart the forests and fields. I mean, it's not just the Judeo-Christian ethic. If my children should be listening to this, and I hope that they do, they would remember that I used to read to them growing up, and this tells a lot about me, and it's a little bit scary. <laughs> I used to read to my kids growing up the Epic of Gilgamesh. Mm. And the Epic of Gilgamesh is a recordation, is a memorialization of 
the paradigm of destruction that has led us to where we are today. Because in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh, who was a demiurge, a demigod, and Enkidu, another demigod, well, you know what they had to do and to advance the civilization that they were presiding over? They had to kill Humbaba, the god of the forest. Mm. The whole metaphor of the Epic of Gilgamesh, the oldest epic on the planet, again, you've got me started with Joseph Campbell, <laughs> the oldest myth, the Epic of Gilgamesh before the Bible is the memorialization of humans destroying the gods of nature and subduing nature and cutting down the cedars of Lebanon and issuing orders to nature. Right. So that mindset, that's the founding myth. That was the foundational mistake of the Western civilization experience. And if you read, again, you brought this up, so you're at fault for me going back to mythology. If you read Daniel Quinn and Ishmael and those great books, it didn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the only mythology that we ever adopted. Unfortunately, it was the mythology that won out. And whether it was through the Epic of Gilgamesh or through the Old Testament or through Francis Bacon and the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution and that reductionism, that whole mindset of man being able to subjugate and give orders to nature and be irresponsible as a planetary citizen. I mean, of the net primary productivity of the planet, and I'm sure your readers, your listeners rather, appreciate that term, but of all of the net calories of food created by all plant life on the planet, of all photosynthesizing organisms on the planet, after they've satisfied the plant's metabolic needs, that which remains, the net primary production of the planet. So there are at least 100 million species on the planet. One species, humans, eats up 40% of the net primary production of the planet. See, now that's just sad. We are selfish, selfish, shame on us. It's our mythology. It's our founding story. It's the paradigm of destruction. It has to change. And that is why, look, I'm not against technology. Mm -hmm. There might be technological solutions that we need to explore. I'm all for clean energy. We have to decarbonize our energy. I am all for that. The lunacy of fossil fuel combustion has got to end. But we can't simply expect that the magical thinking, oh, that there's going to be some technological fix. There'll be some carbon capture and storage device created that will allow us to keep going on destroying the planet and ecosystems because there is a technology that will be invented in 10 years or in 20 years, some Silicon Valley, some Silicon Valley that will fix this. That is magical thinking that when we have a solution right now, we don't need to invent new technology. 
the technology that we need is right there. It's right there. It already exists. And there are farmers. There are millions of farmers around the world farming regeneratively. Most of them in smallholder farm experiences, less than two or three hectares, most women. Mm -hmm. There are millions of regenerative farmers. And there is a regenerative farming movement basically virtually in every country. And what we need to do is take this seed idea of regeneration and just nourish it and go with it and lean into it and revere Mother Nature and copy how Mother Nature produces food. And that's what the regenerative agriculture revolution is all about. And I hope we have enough time. Mm -hmm. I frankly, it's not up to me whether we have enough time. This doesn't give me hope. I'm not dealing in the land of hope and dreams. We have a crisis. It's an existential crisis. We have a solution. It's called photosynthesis. It's called regenerative agriculture. I wake up every morning. We have work to do. Mm -hmm. It's time to get to work. It diminishes us not to get to work. Will it be fast enough? I don't know. That's for others to figure out. We just have to get to work right now. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Since you're doing this incredible work with really the carbon underground, drawing that carbon underground, getting more farmers using these regenerative processes, helping to train them to do that. I mean, I watched a video that you did on YouTube where you gave a speech about the fact that the air we're breathing today or the carbon in the atmosphere is basically the result of what our parents did 40 years ago and that it's going to take that much longer for us to really know what the effect will be. And it really got me thinking about what is that runway? Is it possible to get enough carbon underground for it to sequester 25% or more of our atmospheric carbon to where in my lifetime or in my children's? that they can experience some global cooling? I know that's a big question, but I just wondered what your thoughts are. It's such an important question, and you're not surprised to know that I think about it all the time. Right, of course. And what you were referring to in that earlier talk I gave is the concept of climate lag. Yes, climate lag. Right. So climate lag, it works like this. In there is my kitchen. I want to boil some water. So I pour water in my pot and I put it on the stove and I turn on the flame under that. And that flame is really hot. Mm -hmm. You don't want to get near that flame, right? It is so darn hot. So if I put my hand in the water, it's still cold. Mm -hmm. And then a minute later, it's a little bit warmer. And then a minute later, it's a little bit warmer. And it takes a while for the heat of that flame to transfer that energy into the water in the pot. Now imagine if the pot is the size of the ocean and if the flame is the heat energy that is trapped because of the greenhouse gases that radiates back to Earth and that keeps building and building in the Earth and in the oceans. It takes a long while to heat up the oceans. 
And the oceans are absorbing so much of the CO2 and so much of the heat. So what does that mean today? So the climate that we have today really reflects the CO2 levels, the greenhouse gas levels that existed 40 to 60 to 100 years ago. And different climate scientists will give different numbers on this, but the numbers that I think make most sense are that it takes 40 years to experience 60% of the heat energy that is trapped by greenhouse gases. So what we're experiencing today is slightly more than half of the global warming caused by the greenhouse gases when I was in college. Well, that's certainly frightening. Ah, but it's also good news. Okay, it's frightening. Because it means that if we simply keep on with business as usual, if we sustain yep. what we're doing, then we're cooked. We're just cooked. Because in 30 years, I mean, when I was in college, we were at 325 parts per million. And now we're at 417 parts per million. Imagine 40 years from now, what that will be like. The last time Earth had CO2 levels this high, uh, there were hippopotamuses swimming in the hot swamps of London, and there were forests on the South Pole. I mean, it was a different world a world that would be unrecognizable and unlivable for the human experience. So we can't simply sustain what we have. The idea of being net zero, I mean, it's laughable. Mm -hmm. We have a trillion tons of legacy CO2 in the atmosphere that shouldn't be there, that humans put there because of agricultural malpractice and fossil fuel emissions. It has to get put back to work in the soil. So we can't be net zero. We have to be net negative in terms of atmospheric CO2. Or in 40 years, literally only the gods know right. what this ecosystem hell will look like. But that's the good news, is that even though, in a way, that hell on Earth is locked in, because we already have 417 parts of CO2 in the atmosphere, it's going to take 40 years for that global warming to our global nightmare to occur. So we actually have time to draw that down. So the nightmare of climate lag, which is, oh my God, it's locked in. We can't do anything. The bomb has already gone off. No, I mean... Yes, no, the bomb has gone off, but it's going to be 40 years or so before we feel it, and we can do something, we think. In the world of climate science and supercomputers and climate modeling, there are so many different models that I don't want to pretend to know which one in this highly sensitive world that the butterfly effect and the sensitivity of any small change. I don't know enough. No one knows enough. We don't know 
if there's enough time to fix this. But yet we know that there are 5 billion hectares of land. There's 3.5 billion hectares of grasslands, 1.5 billion hectares of arable land. We know that people around the world are showing drawdown and integration of carbon into the living tissue of land. I was just on a call with Russell Hedrick, who was a row cropper on the eastern seaboard of the United States, and he's showing nine tons of carbon per hectare per year in row cropping of regenerative agriculture. David Johnson and his partner and scientific collaborator, Hui Chun Su, are showing in row cropping in Arizona, nine to 10 tons of carbon, not CO2, but carbon. That's a stunning amount. 10 tons of carbon is 36.7 tons of CO2. Wow. Being put into the soil and being put back to work. There are people all around the world. I mean, maybe only one ton of carbon per hectare in the Sekim biological biodynamic test in Egypt, the great work being done all through Africa with no-till agriculture showing five, six tons of carbon per hectare per year just using green manure cover cropping. Nothing fancy. Hmm. Just using no-till with the introduction of multiple species of cover cropping. I mean, this is the great hope. So if you've got 5 billion hectares and we can sequester one ton of carbon per hectare per year, well, it's 5 billion tons being drawn down. Yep. What if we could sequester 10 tons of carbon per hectare per year? Imagine. Yeah, we don't know what the limits are. We're in experimentation, basically, at this point. This is the crisis of all time certainly of our time. This is the opportunity of our time. We have the technology. It is time-tested. It's called photosynthesis. It's waiting for us. There are no technological barriers to entry. It can be done by people of limited resources. There's no great capital barrier. We're talking introducing cover crops. Mm -hmm. It's literally that simple. So I'm encouraging policymakers, governments, corporations, farmers around the world to open your awareness to the opportunity of regenerative agriculture. And I might add, you have no choice but to farm regeneratively. Because if the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, is to be believed, if all of the global soil scientists who contributed to the papers of the FAO are to be believed, we are losing 25, 35 billion tons of topsoil per year. It just blows away. Which is being eroded, which is oxidizing, Mm -hmm. which is literally volatilizing right into the atmosphere, Mm -hmm. are being washed into the rivers and the seas through erosion because of our practices. The FAO says that in 55 or 60 years, there'll be no soil left with which to grow food. 
So farmers around the world, supply chain managers around the world, what are you going to do <laughs> when there's no soil and there's no water? What are you going to do? Right. Where are you going to grow your cotton for your clothing? Where are you going to grow your food for the eight or nine billion people? There's no soil left if we keep farming as usual. So when people say to me, well, will we learn as a planet to farm regeneratively? We're going to find out. Now, I'm involved in a working group that seeks to gamify climate solutions with businesses. And of course, you can't gamify any of these solutions without measuring results, right? And so I understand from looking at what you're doing with the Carbon Underground that your team is working with a verifiable standard called the Soil Carbon Initiative. I'd like to learn a little bit more about that. And also just with this frame of reference that I've been thinking about, businesses, guess what? They do a lot of landscaping to beautify the properties that they're on. Is there a way to introduce these same concepts into their landscaping so that we have a broader effect, even with just the meager soil on medians between parking lots and things along those lines? Just trying to increase the entire capacity of earth, all exposed soil, to sequester this carbon. Dr. Tim LaSalle and the Center for Regenerative Agriculture and Resilient Systems at Chico State and my partner Larry Kopal and I, through the Carbon Underground, have worked with the fine folks at Green America to create the Soil Carbon Initiative. And on the original design team included wonderful visionary business leaders from Unilever, Ben and & Jerry's, and from General Mills. And working with that design team and working with an earlier definition of regenerative agriculture that Dr. Tim LaSalle and I wrote, and then hundreds of companies signed on to some years ago. And then in collaboration with agronomists and farmers and corporations around the world, we developed the Soil Carbon Index. Mm -hmm. And the Soil Carbon Index has four pillars. The pillars are that over time, stepwise, there will be an increase in soil organic matter in an agricultural system. And you can measure soil organic matter. And the measurements are getting better and less expensive. There will be an increase in below and above ground biological diversity. There will be improvements in water infiltration and water management, and there will be an increase in the structure of the soil. And those are the four pillars of the soil carbon index, and they are outcomes that are measurable. And the reason why we did this is we didn't want to have regenerative agriculture limited by an orthodoxy of belief. We didn't want regenerative agriculture to be, you have to do things this way with these practices, because we don't know enough. Mm -hmm. There are thousands of different soil types and systems and growing zones and plant combinations. Their permutations and combinations are probably in the tens of thousands. 
we don't know enough in every ecosystem with every soil type and with every crop to know exactly the practices that should be used. And so the soil carbon index is not practice-based, it's outcome-based. And so what we tell farmers around the world is we're agnostic as to your practice. If you're achieving those four outcomes, you're regenerative and good for you and good for the planet, and you're to be rewarded for doing that. And so that is the work of the Carbon Underground. It's the work of Green America. It's the work of the Chico State Center for Regenerative Agriculture. It's the work of the Soil Carbon Index to use that index as a benchmark so that scientists developing measuring technologies, and they're being developed every day, scientists developing measuring technologies know the endpoints, the outcomes that are indicative of a regenerative system. So that's our work, and we're very excited. There are companies, there have even been nations flirting with the idea of putting the soil carbon index into their national agricultural policy. We've gotten close. Yeah, We're not giving up. And the key now is to have technologies develop that using those pillars, those outcome goals of the soil carbon index can accurately and inexpensively measure those outcomes so that we can begin to reward those that are doing it and adopt the practices that are working. So how far do you think we are from a recognized certification for foods and products that are really grown regeneratively that perhaps reference this soil carbon index? I think there'll be people who will really disagree with me. There'll be people who say it's already being done. Mm -hmm. And I salute them. I think that the folks with Savory and their measuring tools and their standards, they're doing brilliant work. I love what Savory is doing. I think the good folks with the regenerative organic certification, they would contend that they're already doing that. And again, I think in the universe of fixing the planet, I'm going to salute everyone who's working in the regenerative direction. My personal feeling is that we're probably a year away from a combination of standard that I think works, which is the soil carbon index, and the technology that will effectively, economically, and at scale measure those endpoints. So I think it's close. Again, I honor those that believe that their standards are doing it already. And I'm sure that they're really measuring a lot of great success, and I won't take a thing away from what they're doing. But I personally feel that we're about a year, maybe 18 months away from some very dramatic opportunities that can scale economically and quickly to farmers everywhere on the planet. Well, I mean, really, the reason I asked is because I think consumers need to hear more about it to get engaged and involved. And the only way I see that getting to the scale where 
let's say enough people will get involved is to have the word regenerative or regeneratively grown almost replace or supplant what we've seen with the non-GMO project or organic certification, because then the conversation just gets to a new level and their engagement will improve the likelihood that that will advance more quickly and that we'll get more done. That's just my belief anyway. I'm all for you. I mean, you hearken back to my experience at New Chapter, and we were very early adopters of the non-GMO program, and we were very early to embrace the National Organic Program for Dietary Supplements. Mm -hmm. My farm has been free of synthetic fertility inputs from the beginning of time. I am not a fan of GMO technology, Mm -mm. the production of food, but it will be great to have consumers demanding truly regenerative textiles and truly regenerative foods. But you know who else is going to want to do that? I won't name names, but I've talked to some CEOs of some very big international corporations. They have to manage a carbon balance sheet too. They do. Corporations are being called to manage their carbon footprints. And right now, corporations are doing a lot of offsetting, but corporations want to inset. Corporations want to actually have their supply chains as part of the solution and not by carbon credits not associated with their supply chains. Mm-hmm. So I think that major corporations, and you see them already, General Mills, Nestle, Danone, and others, you hear them talking about their embrace of the regenerative movement. And that's not necessarily because the consumers are demanding it. It's not necessarily because it will be on label. But responsible corporations know that they have to manage their carbon balance sheets. And I've been in conversations with heads of state, and heads of state know that if their countries are to continue to be able to produce food for their population, they have to have regenerative agriculture, not consumer-driven, but driven out of the care and the responsibility of the leaders, the good leaders of countries around the world. And I've had conversations with them, and I believe that they truly care. And there's another group that will be a powerful force for regenerative agricultural adoption, and that is the developing carbon markets Hmm. of the world. There are trillions of dollars poised to flow into carbon markets. I mean, if you believe Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The Ministry of the Future, I think it's a visionary book, by the way, science fiction though it may be, we will be managing the business of the world by managing our carbon budget. And there will be the flow of trillions of dollars of capital rewarding those that are actually putting carbon back to work in the ecosystem. And so whether it's heads of state, heads of government, consumers, or the capital markets, I believe that all of those are converging to demand truly measurable, objectifiably measurable, scientifically validated regeneration based on outcomes 
And I believe that we are developing through our work the true ministry for the future. Well, the time is now, right? We have to get to work, pick up our boots, strap them on, and get going. So as we prepare to wrap up, is there a question that you wish I'd asked you? And if you'd like to pose it and then answer it, that would be awesome. And if not, if there's just a thought that you'd like to leave our audience with. The future is unknown. We should not be morose. I don't think that this is a time to focus on the problem, but to focus on the solution. There is no drop of love that is ever wasted, either in a family, in a relationship, or in our relationship with Mother Earth. I think that we humans are fully capable of reimagining a relationship to the planet, of creating a new paradigm that goes beyond the Gilgamesh paradigm of destroying the gods of nature to a new and I think unknown mythology and paradigm of regeneration. What a time to be alive on the planet as we are in this phase transition to our inevitable regenerative future. I'm a little bit white in beard. I may not be alive to see us reach that promised land, but I'm going to work every day of my life with every beat of my heart and every drop of love for the planet to make that happen. And we in the Carbon Underground and other organizations aligned with us welcome all people to join us in that mission. Well, I'm right there with you, Tom. I'll be marching right alongside you and really dedicating myself to the same thing. It was the whole reason I even really started this podcast almost a year ago now. So I'm just so thrilled that you joined me today. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I've learned quite a bit too. So thank you for that. I hope we get to meet soon in person again. I'll take you on a farm tour. Yes. I look forward to that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I've wanted to be in Costa Rica, I think, my whole life. I love being in tropical weather and near the equator. I feel like my body just sings. So one day in the not too distant future. Thank you, Tom. So listeners, now it's time for me to ask you to act. You can do a couple of simple things for me. First, I'd really like for you to go and explore the website that is the Carbon Underground and learn what they're doing from their perspective. They take donations directly on the site and you can learn more. And you can also just go back to caremorebebetter.com and sign up for the newsletter. You'll get your action guide and have more tools in your tool shed to get involved and ultimately stay informed. As always, I will publish all of the details and notes in show notes, and you will also receive transcripts if you visit our site as well. So you can learn and read and investigate all of the conversation that we had today. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can regenerate earth. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 